my hearty my Kitane Hawtucker. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National Wallace Chapman with it. Now there's been a crash on State Highway 1 Southern Motorway Auckland. The crash is blocking the right lane northbound just after jury off ramp, according to Wakakotahi in an update uh, uh, just before three. So pass with extra care, expect delays. Well, today it feels a little like election day, doesn't it? Election day 2.0. Special votes have been counted and National Enact will need the support of New Zealand First to form the next government. We have a reaction just after four and also after the 4.30 headlines. Also on the panel, people using cash all their lives feel a little left in the dark. Cashless buses are concerning to Grey Power. We talk about that. And Wayne Barnes, who oversaw the Rugby World Cup final between South Africa and New Zealand, has announced his retirement from refereeing, stating that online abuse and threats have become too regular. What is going on in the world of refereeing? Also today, the last song by the world's greatest ever band and incredibly is really thanks to a Kiwi. Listen for the verdict this afternoon. And our question of the day for you today, a documentary or series, doco series that made a real impact on you, one that you can suggest, because Dean Hall mentioned this yesterday, we thought we'd come back to it. So I have two more for you. Some Kind of Monster about Metallica, it's brilliant, and Campaign from 1999. That follows the election campaign in Wellington Central at the dawn of MMP. What's yours? 2101. Or email me, thepanel at rnz.co.nz. With me today, Stuff Senior Sports Journalist in Wellington, uh, Zoe George. Kia ora, Zoe. Kia ora. Always lovely to be on oh, the panel, Wallace. No, it's lovely to have you on, Zoe. And David Farrah, editor of, editor of Kiwi Blog, owner of Curia Market Research, whose clients include uh, the National Party. David, kia ora. Welcome to the panel. Great to be here. And a minor correction, I'm almost certain it was 1996. I've seen that documentary. Oh. It's really good. One of the best fly on the wall docos ever. Uh, but it was the 96 one That's where right. there was this sort of high drama. That's it. I think you're right there. Uh, I haven't seen it for many years, but I can recall it. So let's discuss that later. What's your suggestions? And to the Friday mailbag, before we talk about the election results, I do want to jump into what some of you have been saying. We had a big response of the quality of health in regional areas, this despite excellent staff, too hard to get seen. Uh, Irene says, I live in Rawene. It already takes me two hours to get down to my Whangarei appointments. Northland people need healthcare on par with other parts of New Zealand. Uh, at my regular three monthly dermatologist appointment in Whangarei this week, the dermatologist told me that he was retiring. There are now no dermatologists in Northland. Wanaka here. Wanaka now has no after-hours medical services after 11pm. There were over 100 ambulance call-outs last month alone, which means in an emergency, you may be waiting for hours if they are transporting patients to Queenstown or Alexandra 
one and a half hours away. It's best not to have a heart attack after 11, which is quite concerning, isn't it, Zoe? If you are living in a in Godzone somewhere, you might have, be living in a beautiful little town, mm-hmm. but it's just hard to get seen. Well, and it's not even where you're far away. Like if we look at the Wadadapa, which I've got connections to, trying right. to get in to see um, particularly mental health uh, advisors is really difficult. Um, and, you know, they're, they're really crying out for medical staff over there. So it's not just in our really isolated communities, it's still in some of our populous communities too. David? Um, it's almost a nightmare in terms of the shortages we've got. And I was actually talking to someone in a cafe earlier about them, and we have no choice but to import, as in we have to, yeah, it takes so long to get the right numbers through domestic training. So I think it's going to be one of the huge challenges for the next three years. Indeed. Uh, the other big story this week, wasn't it, was the demise of online grocery retailer Soupy. Now, a generous donor came forward to pay all outstanding wages for the 120-odd employees. This is a big story this week, and here's one. Losing your job is one of the most stressful events that ordinary people experience. My sister worked in London, and the company she worked for went bust. She was escorted to her desk by a security guard and told to remove her personal belongings and then escorted out. Not a nice experience to lose the month's wages and no notice of anything untoward heading in the direction of the company. So that's quite an honest uh, piece of feedback there, Zoe. Um, Needless to say, really tough, eh, if you are in this situation, uh, of which there are many. Oh, my heart went out to those employees. It's it's so difficult. You know, many of us are going through restructures or reframings in our workplace right now. And, and particularly if you're a, yeah. a civil servant, uh, it's it's even more precarious, uh, if, particularly if you're in the comms position over the next six months with, you know, promises from the new national government that they're going to cut lots of uh, contractors and, and comms staff. So, yeah, I, I really feel for those people. It's It's really tough losing a gig. David? Yeah, I mean, it's sad on two levels. One is 120 staff. That's a lot to be made redundant. Ah, that's, you know, 120 families. But in terms of also the lack of competition, it's sort of like not quite back to square one, but everyone knows we need more competition. This looked to be a pretty good go at providing that, but but sadly they failed. So, you know, it's going to be one of, again, another job for the new government to look at what can we do to allow people to compete. Gosh, the new government's got a big agenda, doesn't it, David? <laughs> oh, look, I actually feel a bit sorry for them. Uh, I'm not trying to be dramatic now, but there's such problems with workforce issues and health, with education. This isn't just blaming the previous government. Look, around the world, the evidence is that locking schools down for months or longer was actually the wrong thing to do because they've then got disengaged. It's hard to get them back into school. So there's some really, really big issues. And yeah, some issues are easy to fix. It's like we need to spend a bit more money here. But some of the issues 
before us are really going to take some hard work. We'll see in the next three years what that brings, and we may return to that just after four with uh, David Farah and Zoe George. Uh, on a very, very different note, uh, Bad Jelly, the witch turns 50 years old. It became uniquely popular in Aotearoa, in fact, here, because it wasn't just a book in New Zealand, but it was a radio event you tune into. As uh, Jim and Grace would say, your dick wears on ZB, or indeed 95BF with Finn, the kids' show. He's played it many times, or they played it many times over the last few years. Uh, all kids here discovered it on the radio. Here's one. My oldest son is now 28. Bad Jelly the Witch was his bedtime story every night. My husband and I got really good at speed reading it. Bad Jelly, says Jay in Ototahi. In 2020, our enlightened community college art teacher, Brent. Brendan Nightingale played Bad Jelly to a bewildered group of 17 to 24-year-olds, definitely took the mind off the COVID virus, and it broadened their education. Uh, Zoe, can you recall uh, waking up and listening to Bad Jelly the Witch? I remember reading Bad Jelly the Witch. I think it's definitely part of an iconic New Zealand childhood and, and upbringing um, I think it's definitely up there with Harry McCleary uh, in, in its iconic status um, but you yeah, can't go wrong David uh, I have to agree with that um, absolutely iconic I'm not quite sure as iconic as Harry McCleary probably because with a three and a six year old <laughs> I've been more exposed to those recently I think we've got all the box <laughs> yeah uh, and just a bit of word on this dogs allowed off leash at Oriental Bay, Wellington. Now, David Cunliffe said this should absolutely not be allowed. This is before 10 a.m. and after 7. Wallace, I only recently shifted from Oriental Bay from an apartment that had a panoramic view of the bay. During the three years that we were there, we saw virtually no one on the beach before 10 or after 7 during the summer months every day of the week. Certainly no one sitting on beach towels, at least. I took a series of photos to document this, but have since deleted them. Uh, Jackie and Wellington, total dog lover here, but no dogs, absolutely no dogs should be allowed on that beach without a leash. It's too busy in those times in summer. Well, you, we have a Wellington panel here. What do you think, David? I actually disagree. I think it's a great idea. It's not packed at those times. Yeah, if if there's a dog that causes problems, well, that dog shouldn't actually be out in public ever off the leash. But I actually think there's not a lot of places in Wellington where you can have a dog off the leash. And Oriental Bay, it's, it'd be great for the dogs. They've got a lovely big strip where they can run around, etc. So I'd right? at least favour of trialing it. Okay, yeah, so yes. I'm, I'm all down for responsible ownership. I don't own a dog. I have a very high-maintenance cat uh, who I'm sure would absolutely love the beach. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm and I must admit, I avoid Oriental Bay just because it gets so, so busy. So I'd rather go up to the Kapiti Coast or out to Scorching Bay or Lyle Bay. Um, but yeah, if we've got responsible dog owners and it's no one else is on the beach, then yeah, I'm all for that. Yeah. Uh, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National, uh, uh, Zoe George, what's yes. your eye been thinking for us this afternoon? I've got a couple of quick hits for you. Um, so 
I am the guest speaker at this month's Capital Conversations here in Wellington, being hosted at the Wellington Museum. It's such a wonderful, wonderful venue, and that's happening on November 21st. Doors open at 5, the talk starts at 5.45, and you get a drink and nibbles. So come along and hear some tales of sport and and all sorts of things that uh, that I get up to that you may not hear here on the panel. Um, I wanted to say a big thank you as well to the listeners. Last time I was on, we talked about the crisis that the creative sector is currently experiencing, and so many people reached out, and it was really beautiful to know that people truly care about the arts. And as we head into the Christmas period, I hope that people think about how they can also help continue to support our creative Very sector. Um, and also, don't forget, Black Ferns are playing tomorrow! Oh, Woo! Mount Smart! <laughs> At Mount Smart, 7pm kickoff nice against the Red Roses. It's a replay of last year's Rugby World Cup. Let's go! No, let's not forget the Black Ferns tomorrow. Red Roses, Mount Smart Stadium, 7pm kickoff. Kia ora, Zoe. Uh, David Farah, uh, I've been thinking... Well, perhaps no surprise considering we got the final result today, but that's what I've been thinking about. Specifically, I think the way that we get the final result is quite wrong. We have on election night this wonderfully transparent process where every minute, every few minutes, you're getting the votes updated the moment they're counted. But then after election night, The Electoral Commission shuts it all down, spends three weeks counting the specials. There's no progress votes. Didn't always used to be that way. In 2002, I remember checking the progress results every day because I was able to then calculate for listing Peter on the edge, are you going to get in? And I think it's just a bit ridiculous that you suddenly have just three weeks later an announcement out of the blue, (laughs) who's won, who's in, who's out. Can you imagine... Don't get me wrong, Electoral Commission, totally trustworthy, but could you imagine if this was the United States? We have a result on the night, and then three weeks later, they announce a quite different result. At least in the US, you see every day, look, we've counted some more votes, here's the progress. There's no reason not to do progress reports every day um, so people can see what way the special votes are trending. And do, does that mean that today it wouldn't feel like election 2.0 because you'd have those uh, results trickling through, so it'll be sort of more business as usual? Yeah, after a few days, look, most of these votes get counted within the first few days. They're recounting the main votes too. And I guess what they worry about is that occasionally you might have someone's total goes down by 10 votes when they discover a mistake. But I'd rather have the transparency on that and that early clarity over where the election is heading rather than, you know, two weeks of where the votes actually have been counted probably but no one knows on the you. result. Well, it might not be over too because we've got the recounts. Don't forget as well, some close calls here. We'll talk about that just after four with Zoe, George and David Farrah. Do stay with us. Fridays, the panel.